Yeah. Oh, you can see those. Good. Yeah. Just this, a couple this, of them. This is my old, my old, this is my my old bedroom. Oh, used to be way more interesting than it is right now. Are you in Utah? Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Utah. I'm at my parents' house. My my mom had a shoulder replacement. So. Jeez. Oh, oh man, it's tricky. We had a, a assistant come to the house to help us with in-home antibiotic infusion, which is like, oh, oh it's all scary. Yeah, she has like a pick line going through oh, her yeah. veins up to her heart, which I guess is really common. But yeah, my dad had that. Everything oh, yeah? worked out okay. Yeah. No, like yeah, a every couple times actually. Did did you have to do infusion? He had to. Yeah. I didn't have to do it personally. Like someone will come to the house, but That's yeah. Cool. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be able to do it, but oh yeah, man, it's, it's like yeah, it was a little just when you don't know what it is, it's terrifying, you know. It's sure. scary, yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, let's go ahead and get started, y'all. It's June twenty third, twenty nineteen, episode one hundred and eighty five. That's when we're recording. This episode will be released. July 11th, but we are recording on June 23rd, and my name is Casey Cangelosi, and <laughs> I'm hosting today, and with me as usual, we've got Carly Vigna on the line. Hi, everyone. How's it going, Carly? Good, good, good. And we've also got Caleb Pickering. Hey, how's it going? It's dark. Can't see anything. It's, it's dark? <laughs> the camera doesn't work, so it's a oh. failed joke. That's fine. I see, I see. Well, all right, we better move on to Brian Nosny then. <laughs> hey, guys. You got a LaCroix joke or what? I, I do, I do. Uh, I mean, you can say no. It's always I okay. No, I'm, I, man, I'm, I'm prepared now. I have a list. This is how sad my life is. I have a list ready for you guys for this. Can um, we have one? Here, here's a good one. Uh, LaCroix tastes like if you were drinking carbonated water and someone screamed out loud the name of a specific fruit in another room. <laughs> I don't know why it's funny. It's so it's so dumb. But it's, I know the fact that we all like Lacroix too, and yet we still make like love these things, making fun of it. I don't know. Well, they're all like abstract and very. We- I don't know. They're always. I don't, yeah, they're they're never very literal about the actual taste of it. Right, right. Mark is really regretting being on this podcast at this point. <laughs> like, what have I walked into here? It's the worst percussion podcast in the industry. Really, we're hoping CNN will pick it up. Maybe Netflix. We'll see. Well, speaking of Mark, you guys, today's guest, he's a well-known, well-respected touring clinician, adjudicator, and author. He's written numerous method books, including ones you've probably seen if you've been teaching at all or you've been a student for any time, which is a fresh approach to snare drum, also a fresh approach to mallet percussion. Uh, These are two of the world's best-selling beginning percussion methods. Mark's teaching experience includes 18 years in Texas public schools as a percussion instructor and band director at middle school and and high school levels. He was previously percussion caption head for the Skywriters Drum and Bugle Corps. This was 85 to 91. And he's currently the director of internet activities for a little company you might have heard of called Vic Firth. Have you guys heard of that? Is that like, what do they make? What do they make? Salt shakers, right? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, how's it going? Pepper mills. Yeah. How's it going, Mark Wessels? Nice to have you. Well, so nice to be here. Um, actually, my job changed last year. So uh-huh. I have a new job title. Oh, and uh, we did a, a little restructuring because uh, uh, most people know that the Zildjian company bought the Vic Firth company before sure. Vic, Vic passed away uh, maybe six years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have been operating autonomously for 
quite a long time, but uh, last year we we consolidated the marketing departments. So my new job title, wait for this, is the Global Director of Education and Content Strategy. So I think I think I pulled. So you get you your... get more zeros after your um you know your your yeah. pay stub. That's you get right. more zeros on the pay stub the longer your title is. I'm I've learned sure this. I, I'm pretty sure I pulled your bio from. Pearl website. You're a Pearl endorser, right? <laughs> yeah, that's been a lot of years, but right. So a lot there's years, a lot of bios if, floating around. <laughs> I was just imagining an argument. You know, Pearl saying, "Oh no, we we refuse to update your Vic Firth activity because we don't." <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a bio on on Vic Firth or Zildjian, so you know, you have to go to where you have to go to get my bio, <laughs> and a picture that's probably from you know, 20 years ago. So there you go. Well, I found uh, maybe a good way to start. I found a really nice article you wrote on, I believe, the on I believe VicFirth.com, and it was called something along the lines of, "So, are you interested in self-publishing? And here's kind of how you do it." And I know Brian self-publishes. Caleb has begun self-publishing. I'm self-publishing. And yeah, how are you such a successful self-publisher? Tell us about it. Well, it. it... I'm so successful because I got in it really early. It's kind of like buying Bitcoin before anybody knew what Bitcoin was. Um, I want to say that in the 90s, right after the Mac was introduced, I I talked my wife into saying, I I talked to her and I said, we have to buy this computer. I have to spend $8,000 on a computer and laser printer because... I'm going to take my book and I'm going to self-publish. And nobody knew what that was back then. You know, that, so, you know, the, the benefit of actually getting in really early is probably 90% of my success. Mm. I don't know that if I published my first book today that I would be as successful because there's just so many people doing it, you know, but anyway, well, it's, you, um, what year was it? You said you, you did that with the computer. Um, it was probably 88 because I'm just 89. I'm just thinking that the, you know, the big push in in a lot of ways for self-publishing was the internet that finally gave everyone the connectivity to be able to reach a global audience. So for you to be doing it that early when the internet was not really a thing at all in terms of the general population is really something. Well, it's, it was actually predating the internet because the, you know, like the laser printer came out. And that was the first time that we could, you know, other than dot matrix, we're talking really, really a long time ago. I bought my first computer, bought my first Finale 1.0, $750. I bought uh, PageMaker. I want to say that was that was further along, 2.0 maybe, another $750. (laughs) And then Finale came with a stack for the for the old people in here, a stack of instruction manuals mm-hmm. that that I carried with me every time I traveled and you know tried to learn the ins and out of that crazy crazy uh software package yeah that was a rough one like the first finales were they were rough <laughs> <laughs> there was there was no other options back then yeah music. yeah so you know like that that very first ability to to write something take a graphic and put it within a page layout and actually form what looks like a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually had the book before that 
which I had to do by hand that I, you know, like I, with a typewriter, typed out a, a paragraph and then manually wrote the manuscript, cut that out of a, out of a sheet music thing, taped it in. Those were the really early self-publishing days. Yeah, I, it, I it, it was awful. <laughs> I, I do remember like the old fresh rates. It was almost like it was almost like you were telling the it to render a video. I mean, it took so long to keep just to keep all the notes there. Yeah, I think. Well, I, I remember I had I spent the extra. I think it was eight hundred dollars. The extra eight hundred dollars to upgrade the computer from the standard two megs of RAM. To eight megs of RAM. That was a big deal. $800 it took. So, yeah. you know, like, that was big stuff back then. Sure. <laughs> sure. I, I had this problem with Finale, and I think I would have it with, it was a computer problem more than a software problem, but I, I wrote this piece, this duet, and the players sit on the floor and they face each other, and there's a lot of hand gestures. Like, you have to, like, do this and that, and you, you, you do all these... Um, visual gestures and so i imported graphics into finale and you can you know you can import them and then tell them to assign them the same way treat them the same way you do a staccato or an accent anything that sits on top of a note head and it worked great it's like oh man they appear right there and it's really clear it's really easy and you know be like a hand like that or a fist or a hand like that or whatever this but works last... really well on an audio podcast by the way then well <laughs> well if you're watching on youtube you'll see yeah yeah <laughs> That's what we have. We have the YouTube version. Um, but in the last couple pages, and I actually, I was proud to be turning in the commission early, but I ended up just turning it in on time because the graphics kept disappearing in the last two pages. It got really, really dense. Oh. And the computer couldn't handle it. And this is a modern computer. You know, this is only, I don't know, uh, six years ago, something like that. Jeez. But even today processing that much graphical information with that high of a detail is, is, is hard. Sure. So back then, oh, it was torture. <laughs> you can't even imagine a 12-inch screen that was <laughs> black and white. You know, I mean, it, it, yeah. it's amazing that I, I look back on it and think, how did I, why did I do this? You know, of course, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I don't know. It was it wasn't something that was frustrating back then because that was lightning speed at the time. Right. Right. You know? yeah. And and just the thrill of being able to do something that has never been done every time that you and and I still feel this every time that we try something new, you know, we're 4K video or or we get into, you know, 12 cameras and and eventually live streaming, you know, multi-camera multi performances, all of these things that, that are continually cutting edge. It's exciting. And, and, you know, that probably the frustration level goes away when you're excited about something. So you just sure. got to always be excited. I have, a, I have a fun little story. I was talking to my brother-in-law, Jason, He's married to my sister, Allie, who's the, the vice principal in Utah, who has been on this podcast before. And he was talking about the CAD softwares they would use in school. And they're these, you know, big, expensive software packages. And, of course, like you were saying, Finale is real expensive. Of course, we know, like, um, Ableton Live or one of those. Those are Logic Pro, whatever. All those are pretty expensive. But these CAD softwares are like $3,000 a copy. 
they're more expensive. And he said that a lot of the students were, it was very common to just pirate them, like pirate the softwares, trade copies, share, do all that. And that the creators of the software, the companies themselves, wouldn't go after the students for these copyright violations because they knew it was more valuable for the students to be well-versed on that software rather Mm -hmm. than the competitor. And they know that in the long run, you know, when you get hired, you get hired by some big engineering firm or something. Now you're having that firm buy a whole computer lab worth of that software. So yeah, you're making, it's way more valuable to have the people trained on the particular software. And I've definitely felt that way with with Finale. I've got all this time on Finale and I know Finale and people will say, oh, Sibelius is like better or whatever. It's like, you know, it might be, but nothing will replace the time mm-hmm. that I've already <laughs> right. sunk into. Like that time is so valuable. Like, like think of a software you're really, really versed in. Like, man, could you put a dollar amount on all of that? Probably not, yeah. you know? Well, and I used to use Finale until, uh, until Sibelius was really savvy about their business model and did the whole if you can prove you're a finale user you can we'll give you sibelius for 50 bucks if you if you send us like the first two pages of your instruction manual or something like that and so (laughs) i I just i was so frustrated with finale at one point for whatever whatever reason and so i switched over and every upgrade ever (laughs) oh and i would never upgrade i would i would wait until the upgrade actually had things that i wanted i was like okay that's worth me paying the whatever and stuff but it's funny because my wife uses finale because she does a lot more things like you do caleb or um casey with like um graphics stuff she does a lot like shanker analysis and stuff where Finale's really good at that, and Sibelius isn't so good. So, we've right. we've had our, our friendly debates about it. At the end of the day, we you know I always tell the students it's like oh, just, just pick one. At the end of the day, those tool they're just tools. They you know pick one if you like it, go for it. That's great. It'll both of them will do the job. Yeah. yeah. So I, I missed this. If you said it already, Mark, are you still a Finale user? Yeah. <laughs> I I yeah I haven't I haven't uh, touched into Sibelius. Uh, I, I don't do a lot. I, I do a lot of the learn the music stuff that we do with drum corps and uh, transcriptions with drum set players. So mm-hmm. and then I I'm still working in finale for my books, but I don't I don't write big compositions. So I don't have to have, you know, like insane knowledge. I just know exactly what I need to do and just enough knowledge to make that happen. And then every time they upgrade, I have to figure that out again. Like where did that short shortcut go? Um, you know, what are they calling that now? You know, yeah. <laughs> every time. <laughs> well, and that's like the the that's become kind of the standard now. I mean, especially with the subscription model. Like if you look at like a Pro Tools or Sibelius or any of these softwares now, it's you're going to pay a subscription. You're not going to buy it outright. And then when these these updates come, they're just going to happen all of a sudden. And to me, that's really frustrating because especially if I'm in the middle of a commission or if i'm in the middle of marching band writing and all of a sudden i open sibelius and whoa why is everything changed what i don't have time to learn new stuff right now i gotta i gotta crank stuff out like uh, it's an interesting time with this technology we're definitely in a transitional period i think no technology as a whole i mean just over the the 25 years that i've done 
is mm. always in transition. Don't ever think <laughs> that there's a light at the end of the tunnel it's because it will never happen. Good point. Good point. <laughs> Carly, I think you have something. Yeah, Mark. So aside from all the crazy publishing challenges um, that you, you might have had in the beginning, what originally inspired you to begin writing these method books? Like, was there something that you felt was missing from what was available at the time? Yeah, and, and I think that's what I've learned that's common from all of the guys who did something, whether it's Vic or Neil Grover or, you know, any any person that developed something, it was a frustration with, I can't do what I want to do with what's available here. You know, like I was, at the time that I started writing it, I was, I was a sophomore in college, actually, and I was teaching, you know, like five kids a week at, at, the, at a middle school or 10 kids. And I was using the common things that I grew up using. And, you know, music education had changed enough to, that, oh, reading became kind of important. You know, like, <laughs> and, and as, as dumb as that sounds, but back in the, the early 80s, like reading wasn't that big a deal. It was a lot of rote teaching. And that was that was just kind of music education. And here's what it is. And, you know, as long as the kids had the chops to do what it took to play the music, it was fine. And then, you know, like as it came uh, or as it developed, you know, being a proficient reader, especially on snare drum first and then even keyboard, you know, like that transition from you're not a percussionist unless you play keyboard. Like I lived through that era because it was, there were many parts of Texas where I was teaching that kids just played snare drum. They didn't even teach mallets. They didn't teach reading. They didn't teach, you know, and, and that's what I grew up doing. And then I started teaching in the Lake Highlands, uh, Richardson area where there were a lot of honor bands and a lot of, uh, you know, really, really good programs. And, you know, that was the first thing is the kids have to read a lot. So I was I was trying to update what I was doing. And then finally, I was just writing things going, you, you have to learn how to read these rhythms. I have to break this down this way because, you know, the method books that I was using were, were not really making it happen. And then, you know, like the real benefit, and I, and I probably said it in that self-publishing art, article, is that you, you kind of have to own it. And you have to be willing to take criticism and you have to be willing to change, not based off of my opinion is always right, but listen to others and change as it goes. So that was my early, early, you know, foray into actually publishing had nothing to do with publishing is just I just needed something for my kids to make them better. You know, Mark, you mentioned getting into it early was important and i i know how, how do you advise students today because they'll often ask like how do i get my stuff out there to people and of course i think i got into it a little early too and i mean my method is well okay you should make a recording and it means people are going to pay attention and they're going to pass it around and they're going to see it and they're going to share it and but yet sometimes i'm just amazed i, I find something on youtube that i think is just phenomenal and it's got, you know, 100 views. And I'm just confused. You know, why, why isn't this getting around more? You know, like, what, what do you, 
it's like you said, technology is changing so quick and it's just this like crazy fast moving wave. And if you don't get on it at the right time, well, you better find a different wave to get on, as people say. Like, like how, how would you recommend to a young person? Yeah, here's how you get your stuff out there. Well, you know, I think it and I, I would say this to anybody for anything, you know, whether you're a drum set player and you're trying to break into, you know, I just want people to notice me and or, you know, from concert percussion to marching percussion. We all have that fear that we're too late. You know, we're, we're not really getting in it at the right time. I, I tend to view things that everybody has a very individual voice. And your voice needs to be heard, whether that's heard by 25 people or 100,000 people. I don't, I don't see that there is a... Um, one doesn't make you a better person or a better voice just because more people see it or less people see it. So the important thing is, obviously, always take the first step. What is the first step? You know, in today's world, recording yourself, you know, getting, getting your own YouTube channel, your own social media channel, starting to, starting to work the system – which is funny because when I started working the system meant going to Kinko's, getting my books printed, always carrying 20 copies wherever I went, handing it out. There's a better way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was, that was every convention I went to every place, you know, it was just that, you know, probably very, uh, you know, irritating person that was always saying, Hey, do you, do you have a, a minute? Can I can I show you something? Yeah. You know, I really want you to see this. And I re- because even back then, I remember that people were telling me, "Why does the world need another snare drum book?" So it would be the same today if you're telling a kid, "Why does the world need another marimba quartet, or another percussion ensemble, or another snare drum book, or another formalet book, or you know, really?" Think about it. You have a voice. Your voice is different. Your personality is different. Where you come from, what you want to achieve is completely different than mine and than anyone on this panel. So why not start? Take the first step. But you have to take the first step, and then you have to take another step and another step. You can't just hang a sign and wait for the world to come to you because it won't. I'm, that's really great to say, and I'm honored you called us a panel. That's, <laughs> that's what you got out of this whole thing. Yeah. I'm really, there's a way to have that. I'm going back to my bourbon. Thank you. Right. <laughs> Brian, I think you have something. Well, no, I think that, uh, I think that you're absolutely right, Mark, although I, like a, there's a part of me that is a counterpoint to that, though, is the idea that, yes, every, you're absolutely right, everyone has their own unique voice, but I think that one of the things that's unique about your book, your, I'm sure, yeah, people, why do we need another snare drum book? But your book particularly does something different as, as in that it goes from the very beginning and it actually starts in a very pedagogical way that's different from everyone else. If I remember right, the first like lesson doesn't even have notes. It has a bunch of stickings and it's just getting you used to moving the hands in a certain way and whatever. So I think that I know that I've liked your book because it go. it's particularly targeting like the very, very beginning player just picking up sticks and basically bringing them almost through 
through high school, basically, if you will. And so I think that that's that's something that's different from all the other books. And so in my mind, if anyone has a, a different voice, whether you're writing a marimba quartet or a snare drum book or whatever, but I think that it's important to know what's already out there and then realize how am I going to contribute something that's different that hasn't already been done. Well, it, and I'll, I, I'm not sure that it's a secret because I've told, I've written it in articles. My book is actually, right now, if you picked up my book, it, it's about the 10th generation <laughs> of my book, which is actually the best part of self-publication. <laughs> if I showed you my original book, like you, it's so different that you wouldn't even, you know, right. because I actually started yeah. with 16th notes in mm -hmm. 16 time right. and went all the way from 16th notes to eight time because they were playing in seven sixteen and five sixteen. My view at that point was I have to get them over this, this hurdle that everything has to be in four, four, sure. you know? So anyway, the, I mean, the point of that is that every step along the way I took the book I'd listen to people, you know, I, I used it myself and I always had that opinion that there has to be a better way. There, there has to be an improvement that I can make in this, not necessarily so I could sell more, but really so that my kids could be better percussionists or, or learn to read better or, you know, any, any one of those things. So, you know, like I, I could show you every, iteration of the book and and everybody would say oh i totally wouldn't use that that that's horrible you know but i, I don't think that anybody's a genius i mean right. i've seen some of vic first first sd ones that he carved that he whittled and they're really pretty bad i mean you know I, i'm not gonna say they're bad but uh you know like what he used and what he was doing at the time worked for him and, you know, and he just constantly was, was always about improving. And I think that's, that's what we always have to do. Yeah, great. Well, where did the caveman cover come from? <laughs> I saw that. Mark's got a picture on his Vic Firth article. He says, hey, if you want a quick laugh, check out, because he's talking about the evolution of this, this book. And he shows, I guess that's the first cover, Mark, the caveman. Yeah, it was. It was one of the first covers you know, when I actually was was selling to more than just my students, I thought I have to have something that's completely different than everybody else. And I was a big fan of Gary Larson. The far side at the at the time was really big. Right, that's what it looks like. You know, yeah. and and Gary had driven uh, had drawn several caveman things, you know, where, where the, and I just thought this would be so funny if I put that with a log and then took put two big music notes on the uh on the music paper, you know, like there's only two notes on there and escape man is doing that. So yeah, <laughs> started with that. I mean, like, and this is, this is what's kind of funny is that this is a one man shop. I drew that. I did the layout. I did the, you know, like every step along the way I'm, and even in the first, you know, probably 10 years of the book, I was collating, I was doing the, uh, you know, the chopping, the, thing to put the binder on i was doing all of that myself because i'm too cheap to uh, pay anybody else to do that stuff <laughs> the, the, the tipping point for me mark was i had three monochrome duplex printers running at once to try to fill orders and 
this one ran out of ink. Okay, you refill that, and you've got like this whole assembly line, and you're up till 2 a.m. trying to just get it out the door. You know, your goal is to do it by tomorrow, and so like, okay, I gotta, I gotta like make a deal with a print shop here. This is ridiculous. But I think Brian, you've got something. Well, let's go to the opposite direction now. If that's kind of where the book came from, I mean, you've got the snare drum book, you've got the drum set book, and then you've got the two the two mallet book and now the four mallet book with David Skidmore. I'm just curious, are there are there new plans for what what's the next step in the Fresh Approach series? Yeah, I um, I'm actually working on a book right now. Okay. On my weekends and nights, I I it's actually a hobby, but it's also kind of a release. Sure. Um, I, I'm working on a on a book that's a fresh approach to beginning percussion. That's that's a I don't have to get into the whole thing, but it's it's much more of a musical approach that applies uh, snare drum and keyboard, but then also introduces the instrument, the other accessory instruments, and has really small, short ensembles on every lesson. Okay. So that the students, you know, don't think of themselves as a, oh, I got to learn snare drum and mallets, and then all of this other stuff that requires so much um, facility mm-hmm. and experience just kind of gets taught in the band class, you know, right. that it, it's a whole nother idea. So, so I'm working on that book. Um, I always have three other books in my head, which makes it really tough to sleep at night. Sure. <laughs> Cause you all, I mean, like, like you guys, I'm sure you always have that next thing that you're, you're thinking about the next direction you want to go. So yeah, I'll be publishing until I'm dead. So <laughs> It's really a satisfying thing. I mean, it is very, I feel like if it's the closest thing we get to do, I guess, next to recording, uh, like making something that's permanent and because a musical performance you do and it's gone and it can be great and you can remember, have all the memories from it. But I mean, sometimes I wish I was a, an artist where I just like me alone in an art studio for month after month and working and then you come out with this thing that's permanent and it's there forever and you know you did all your work over time at your own pace it's it's so much different from performing and i you know feel like recording and publishing is probably the closest we get to that right right and and i do think that i encourage people all the time i'm not i'm not enough of a businessman that i discourage people from writing <laughs> you know <laughs> i think we sh- we probably all should if we're publishers you know make that a more difficult thing. But um, the, the satisfaction that I get about um, what you said, Casey, on, on finishing something, having something very tangible, and then having other people be able to experience that, you know, it's almost like writing books or, like you said, artwork, you know? Well, and I love the aesthetic. I've always liked notation. I was like a kid thumbing through a, a notation book and and we take it for granted today you know back to talking about Sibelius and say finale students today man like do you know when the stem direction changes mm-hmm. do you know there's so <laughs> many rules that and you and it, it always is exposed when you ask them to write things by hand and you just see like ah do you know the note head goes on this side during that point you know i mean there was a time when you had to look up there's those little alfred publishing handbooks and there's like a little pocket dictionary and there's a notation dictionary and you know it's like you know which on the sharp symbol which 
line is higher? Is it this one or is it that one? <laughs> and you really yep. notice it when you do it wrong. Anyway, it's just, yeah, right. not notation and calligraphy and manuscripting is, I think, really, really fascinating. Brian, I think you? Well, I, I, going off that, I, when I was in undergrad, I took a jazz arranging class, and the, the teacher was, um, his gig beyond teaching that was, he was Arturo Sandoval's head arranger. And he required that every chart we did, the very first one was not was always for a small combo. Everything had to be handwritten. Every individual part, the score, every he would not let you. And then he was like, okay, and then after that, if you want to use finale, that's fine. But the first one always had to be handwritten. And he felt it was exactly for that so that he could call you out on why are your note why are your stems going the wrong direction here? Why is this that so he wanted you to understand all of that? The, the first theory assignment at Rice, I believe this, I believe this was a guy named Richard Lavenda's class, I think, was the theory one, first day, first assignment, copy a um, page from the Rite of Spring, and mm. it was one of the denser pages, lots of full score, big score, and it, and it wasn't like, it was, uh, sorry, not copy, but um, trace it, put a piece of right. paper over it, and trace mm. everything, and, you know, the, the teacher supposedly wanted it like photo Xerox perfect. Right. But of course in pencil. And of course the goal is just to get a sense of, okay, this is the treble clef, this sure. is the bass clef, and just practice that over and over and over. I think it's a really good idea. Well, and that, <laughs> that, that reminds me of my, uh, my father-in-law is, is a musician and he, um, when things go wrong, they can go horribly wrong. He was talking about, he told me a story once about his, he was doing a theory class and they had some sort of counterpoint assignment or something like that. And the the TA that was teaching it would then sit down at the piano and would read all of them and whatever. And so he got Dave's and he sat down and this guy started to play it. And Dave was sitting there listening to it and like in his head, he's like, oh, my God, that's wrong. Like, that's all wrong. That's awful. Oh, my God, what's happening? And the the TA stopped after it was done. And he said, who who wrote this? And Dave raises his hand. He's like, he's like, this is brilliant. I need to talk to you after class. And. Dave is like, how is this possible? And so he goes and looks at the assignment and the, the TA was like, I'd like to take a lesson composition lesson with you. Like, this is brilliant. It all happened because it was modal. Dave forgot to put a key signature in. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it just goes to show like, yeah, things that we take for granted, like putting in the key signature when you forget bad things happen <laughs> well right and finale or sibelius would catch that for you, you sure know, totally you, it catches mistakes i mean if you played it back you would have yep. noticed you know totally anyway, i think caleb's got something yeah for casey Bryan and mark too as well do you find yourselves writing more or less on pencil when you do composition like i feel like the deeper i get into it the more i write physically like on staff paper like at a piano or an instrument and then those drafts evolve into what goes into Sibelius. Well, how about Mark first? Well, I would say that I'm, I don't write the way you guys write when, when I'm writing a, you know, a, a method book or a beginner book or something like that. I'm not, I'm not too worried about the, the, you know, the manuscript of it. I'm just, I'm putting my ideas on a page and, and it's really strange from where I'm coming from, the way it looks on a page, the the spacing of the notes, the you know, because I think that has a lot to do with how fast kids learn and the ease of learning. Uh, a lot of times I'll change my whole idea based off of what it looks like within 
you know, the, the two line staff or the, or the one line that I, that I have, because if, if I had the most brilliant idea in the world that I wrote on pencil and then I put it in finale and it was all a cluttered mess, then, you know, it doesn't matter how brilliant it was. The kids would never be able to read that. So, so completely different than, you know, a, a composer. Gotcha. Well, I, I think Caleb, my, my personal change has been to do less on paper because I think I know the end result. I know where it's ultimately going. And I think as people say, Hey, as your career accelerates and you get busier and busier, what are some of the ways you utilize to save time? And that's been one for me. And, but also I think there's a change in for, for me, how I've written music instead of sketches of little licks or melodies or something like that like those sketches I, I don't do much of that anymore it's it's much more just a notebook of like big picture ideas which often don't even have notes or rhythms dictated it's just like kind of like a vision and for some reason it helps me like a kind of a vision of the setup or even just like a title and like a little description or something and and then often i'll go straight to computer from there so um yeah, I do. I, I tend to do that, like you said, outside of the music itself. Mm-hmm. Like I, I always had a huge notebook of ideas that the drum set book that I wrote took about five, five years of just writing ideas and then putting it here, putting it there, changing things around. Now I've got this, this really nice iPad with the uh, pen that I can write it and then I can, you know, complete it. But it's really strange that I have to have this. I have to have that, that written part of it. You know, I, a lot of times I'll even, you know, we're, we're starting a, a Zildjian podcast and I have to be the host and I have to talk. But a lot of times I, I need to write what I'm going to say because something about writing it out makes me think differently than if I typed. Right. Mm. Would is would Zildjian be interested in buying this podcast? Buy a <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! I, I don't know what we're doing with this. Definitely, definitely, yeah, definitely. All right, Brian, would you have an answer for that? Um, I start. I usually start with pencil, uh, just, and then I move to the computer. But I try and avoid writing at the instrument. Uh, at all costs, uh, except for the very, very beginning of things, just because for me, if I write at the instrument, I, I tend to feel like the instrument is doing more of the writing because I tend to want to do the things that I'm good at on the instrument. So it's much easier to say like, okay, here's the, here's the main idea. I, I, I got a riff for a whatever on the marimba. Okay, great. Now let's go over to the computer put that in and now let's see how I can mess with that theoretically or whatever sitting at Sibelius because otherwise it's just going to become a lot of the same type of thing going on on the things that I know I can already do. Yeah. Caleb. Yeah. I had a question for Mark just while we're on this kind of publishing topic. Um, Yeah. So for my final project, I have a huge stack of beginner books and such uh, on my desk. And as I'm going through them, the one thing I notice yours and some others uh, do as well is the text itself. Anytime there's actual physical words to read, it's very short and concise and it's not too muddy. I found um, with your text and uh, Ken and Wiley's, the 
uh, I can't remember the main title of the book, but Ken and Wiley's beginning book. Uh, both of them are like very concise and short and it makes it, the idea comes across very easily. Did you go through a lot of editing with the actual text itself? Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's insanely hard because you want to get your entire, and I would think that this is like with composition too, you want this big exposition of your idea. You want, you want to drag people through a 20 minute, you know, <laughs> this is my idea. Everybody buckle in because we're going to be here a while, you know? Um, and, and it's the same way I, I usually have, you know, I usually try to cut it down to the bare, bare minimum. Because what you have to realize, especially in the, in the publishing world, and I do this the same way in, uh, with, with um, all the videos that we do with Vic and with Zildjian now, um, you know, if we're telling a story, you have to leave room for imagination. You have to leave room for people to put their own idea within what you're trying to get across. You know, if there are two types of learners to me, there's the very literal learner, the the one that needs it all spelled out, every single thing, every every voice, every you know, like everything that you need to do, follow my lead. And then there's the the people that just want to be completely left alone. I, I always go back to the the Stone Stick Control book, the first page. I don't know that George Stone, Lawrence Stone, actually meant all that to be interpreted with drum set and all of the different right. things that people are doing. I think he just meant it to be, you know, Vic told stories about taking lessons from him and it was all about just sticking, playing exactly correctly, exactly with the same sound at the same volume level. He didn't say, and then you could take it for drum set and then you could apply this. And then, you, you know, with the left hand, you know, he wasn't into that. So anyway, long story short, um, you leave room so other people can add their own interpretation to it. Carly, I think there's a Facebook question, right? There sure is. Yeah, we have one good question from uh, Nathan Elliott Siegel. And Nathan is asking, Mark, along with your three great books and some solo literature, what do you think is essential for a middle school percussionist development as a musician? Oh, that's tough. Four great books. David Four Skidmore. great books. <laughs> David Skidmore's <laughs> is absolutely necessary. The consummate businessman right there. We'll send Nathan a message. <laughs> no, I think it's, um, you know, it, it's really interesting because everything is based off of your environment, where you're at. I, I travel the world a lot now, and I, and I talk to teachers from around the world, uh, especially middle school, you know, beginner teachers and, and different things. It's all based off of what environment you're in. So I live in Texas. Obviously, Texas is a really big marching band state, you know, but it's also a really big concert band state. So, you know, what you have to do in middle school for preparing a student for high school in Texas obviously is going to involve a lot of, you know, kind of drumline type exercises, maybe getting the kids on tenors and all that kind of stuff. But it also involves what I what I think, you know, is incredibly important is that uh, creative aspect of performance within ensemble. I think, you know, I'll draw one conclusion. Um, I, I remember when my daughter was is was six years old or whatever, and I took her 
to their first soccer practice, right? And I'm not a soccer player. I don't know anything about it. But took her to soccer practice. They spent 30 minutes kicking the ball around. And they said, okay, next practice, first game. And I was, I was like, they don't even know right. which way to go. You know, like, I, I don't <laughs> understand how you're going to have a game on your first, you know, your second day of playing soccer. And, you know, like, here's your uniform, you know, like in the excitement of the kids getting their uniform and, you know, and getting ready for the first game, show up to the game. There's kids picking weeds. There's kids kicking the ball the wrong way. I mean, it's just a, it's a cacophony of craziness, but they're having so much fun. I tend to think that in music, we, we do the opposite where we start a kid out and we go, okay, here's how you hold the stick. You know, like, no, let's talk about all the different things that, that happen to hold the stick. And then we we have six months of training before we ever even get to play music. Right. So, you know, like, what does that do to kids with wanting to succeed or want to play and want to just have fun making music? You know, are there and I'm talking to myself because I think there has to be a better way. There has to be a way that we're getting more kids just enthralled in making music. And maybe the way that we were trained, maybe the way that, that we were doing things is not the best way. Maybe the little kids rock concept, and I don't know if you guys know anything about it, maybe that's the best way. Mm -hmm. Get kids playing music and, and having fun playing music, and then we can teach them the other stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, back to the question... I think making music is a, a big priority, you know, even even more so than I got to get through this method book. I got to get this tryout at, under the way, you know, solo ensembles coming up, you know, X, 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 you know, like we got to fill the calendar full of stuff. Are they having fun making music? If not, well, I think we're, we're we're missing the the boat, right? I, I you of course you're right, and and I bet I everyone if we asked everyone on this panel, I'm gonna call it a panel because it's allowed now. Um, if we asked everyone here, they were always making music. So you had your lessons that were really strict, and you're reading music, and you're doing little theory rhythm exercises, and you're learning how to hold. But then you also had your punk rock garage band where you were like, like I bet everyone, at least everyone who's like still doing it today had that encouragement somewhere. So yeah, you're right. Like what about the kids who don't have that resource? You know, I meet students all the time now who, you know, I say like, you know, so what was your garage punk rock, punk rock band called? And they're like, what? I didn't have a freaking punk rock garage band. Like, what? I thought everyone had that, you know, like what was your outlet in middle school? And that's a, and, and that's what we're missing. I think yeah. in this era, there's, you know, garage band, uh, contributors, you know, people who are, who are online contributing to stuff and, and right. their own YouTube channels, but there's not that physical, Hey, I got a band, you know, and, right. and what are we missing as concert percussionists by not having bands and not having opportunities to make music before that they can read all of this and they can, they can play all of this. I was talking to Josh Quillen one time about what if we came up with some type of contest where we just, we made it, uh, on, we got a, an ensemble together that was just four players for four instruments and we scored it out, but you can in, completely interpret it any way. And it could just be a very beginner level thing. And then we asked 
everybody to go find some instruments, find pots and pans and, you know, uh, pipes. And I, I want every single person that turns in a, a submission to have a completely different interpretation mm. of this little ensemble, mm. you know? So still I mean, something that's on, on the top of my head, like how much fun would that be yeah. that you I just mean, turn be... four kids over into, you know, they're finding I mean, sounds. It can always be drum circle, right? Like <laughs> probably all like, didn't y'all? Okay. It's like your band director, like there was nothing urgent to do. And in your percussion hour, he would say like, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Do drum circle. And be, you know, he, hide away in his office and we do drum <laughs> circle i don't know if people still do that but that was an outlet you know sure yeah brian i think you had something uh mark i was just curious you know you you wrote the first three books and then david skidmore wrote the fourth one for the four mallet stuff i'm just curious as to like how can you talk a little bit about that project how it how it started how it came about was it your idea was it his idea um well first of all David was a student of mine. <laughs> ah, I won't say he was a student. I, I was a band director, and he was he was a percussionist in my band. Uh, he had a private lesson teacher. But um, anyway, I connected with him. You know, like you connect with kids or, or certain individuals back when he was in eighth grade. You know, mm -hmm. like, wow, this kid is special. And, and so anyway, we, ha we all have always had that connection, you know, as he went uh, through college and at Yale and, you know, I was going, Hey man, we need to do something together. But the, like the early idea, and this has probably been six years in the making was actually, uh, an idea that I had with Bob and size and I were talking at one point about how percussionists learn. And he was really kind of upset that, you know, we learn completely different than violinists or pianists learn. You know, they they have so much literature and they're constantly playing new pieces constantly. They, we have this mentality that we need to work up a piece and we need to spend six months working on a piece to to be able to perform it. And it has to be and especially in Texas, if you if you know anything about the state, it's almost like a uh, I don't know that people compete against each other for how good you teach by how hard the solos are your students are playing. Mm. And so, you know, these students are playing these insanely hard pieces really early. They don't understand it. They don't have any musical concept of what's going on. Uh, maybe they're enjoying that process. But, <laughs> you know, if, if you compared it to how a, a violinist learns at an early age or a pianist learns at an early age, you're just plowing through a bunch of pieces. They're learning all kinds of things about phrasing. So I took that conversation that I had with Bob and I was talking with David about it. I said, you know, he was just starting to compose. And I said, this would be a great thing that we, you know, like we could contribute to percussion. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to give you this idea. I'm just going to let you run with it. But what if, you know, and, it, and it's not, it's not an insane uh, different concept. You teach one little technique, but then make some music with it. You know, instead of waiting until you have all of these techniques down to play a piece of music, you know, like that's kind of a challenge as a composer to go, oh, all I can do is, you know, lateral strokes, you know, or pistons, uh, what, whatever your limitation is, make some music out of it. 
so that's that's where the concept came in. Uh, it took about five years of me harassing him, and <laughs> I kept going, David, what about this book? David, what about this book? And and finally went, all right, I'm I'm going to dedicate myself to doing this, and and he did, and I think it's it's pretty amazing. If you haven't checked it out, uh, you can Google that uh, technique in music musicianship with four mallets, fresh approach, and he's got an entire. Uh, set of lessons and performances of all the pieces. I think they're fin- fantastic. And I guess we should mention this is at markwesselspublications.com. You can see all these things, right? Right, right. Yeah, which is your your publishing company. Right. Hey, well, um, yeah, Carly, why don't you why don't you cue me in for that? I'll edit this out. <laughs> Right. Well, or I can if I I, I missed it a while. I, I think I think Mark did it really well earlier. Yeah, Mark, why don't you why don't you cue me in on this new new <laughs> new, new uh, topic? Okay, well, I have a question for the panel. Yes, great. because you know, as I as I talk, I'm always looking back on all of the things that have happened in my life that brought me to where I am. What happened in music history today? awesome that's exactly right yeah thanks a lot mark we uh i thought i'd try something new you know i'm always trying to shoot for like new topic ideas or whatever and also like quick kind of smash and grab ideas that are don't take hours upon hours of research and uh, one of those ideas was yeah what if i just kind of report on what happened in history that day so anyway welcome to the first this day in music history and i'll just report to you what i found but uh yeah we're releasing on july 11th and on July 11th, a few things happened. One of my favorite, well, my favorite David Bowie song called Space Oddity was released in the UK. So that happened in 1969. And actually, when you look it up, they have it listed as Space Odyssey. That is not what it's called. It's called Space Oddity. It's my favorite David Bowie tune. And another interesting thing happened in the year 2000 on July 11th. You guys heard of this guy Lars Ulrich? Anybody? Never heard of him. Yeah, Never heard I don't of him. Know. Yeah, heard. nobody knows. It's about <laughs> stealing music. That's all I remember. That's uh, right. There you uh, go. That's always wonder Napster. Yeah. You nailed it. Yeah, that's right. Two thousand. Yeah. So Metallica's drummer Lars Ulrich, he was the uh, first witness to testify in a U.S. Senate hearing over copyright law issues con- uh, concerning free shi- file sharing ugh, music files on websites such as Napster and mp3.com. Do you guys remember that heyday? Do you remember just how awesome it was? I, <laughs> it's, it's funny, I've been teaching a history of rock class, and yeah. when we get to Metallica, I go into this, and I go, do, do any of you even remember Napster? And, and they don't. There's all, they, they don't. They, they don't. don't. And, then I have to, and then I start going further, and I'm like, all right, what about LimeWire or Kazaa? Or like, I start going down uh-huh. all file sharing things, <laughs> And then they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. And so then I have to go, okay, sit down, children, and let me tell you a story about back in the day when before (laughs) YouTube and streaming. I I don't know where it all landed for them money-wise, but of course we know Napster existed. I don't know if it still exists or not, but it, it, it turned into a pay site. But man, they were, it says here, Metallica saw the minimum of $10 million in damages at the rate of $100,000 per illegally downloaded song, which I don't understand at all. I mean, I thought when you, you start a lawsuit, you have to demonstrate this is how much this is worth. How could you ever 
even think each song was worth a hundred thousand dollars like where, where is even I, the basis for that i think what i think their justification was if i remember right they brought they brought a lawsuit against the company and i think against a certain amount of people within that but i think their justification was that while we're just naming these 10 people i could be wrong on this but i think it was like we're naming these 10 people but the reality is we know that it has like Enter Sandman has been downloaded off Napster a million times or whatever. And so I think that was how they said. So based on this statistic, we feel that we should get X amount of money per song. Oh, I get it. So that's not per actual Enter Sandman. That's just the track Enter Sandman. And yeah, how it, I think got that, it. Got it. Yeah. Well, in that case, then, Brian, I'm guessing you you probably bailed after the Black Album. Like I like when they cut I their did. hair. I mean, I, too. I did. Yes. I don't, uh, I don't know how anyone can stick with them after they cut their hair. Oh, just... Although I do still th- actually that the S and M album with the San Francisco Symphony is really good. Where so they with, with Michael Kamen, like I think I do enjoy that at least. Although but they're playing, they're probably playing all those old tunes. Exactly, that's true. They are. Um, but if we didn't have all those new stuff, we wouldn't have one of the greatest YouTube uh, videos, which is. Uh, I think it's uh, Master of Puppets, but with the Saint Anger oh. snare drum sound. Uh, yeah, I've heard it's, that. And with the uh, with the Injustice for All snare drum or whatever. It's so <laughs> bad. Who does that? How do people do that? I How don't do know, do but it's it's magical. It's just... So, it's magical. Like, for people who don't understand, they're, they're basically taking one song and they're editing changing out every snare drum hit for another snare drum hit on a previous album and it it really changes the song so much especially if you really have it in your ear which of course yeah master of puppets yeah dude we listen to that for mm-hmm. over and over a bazillion times i think caleb you have something yeah um yeah i remember i might be the last generation of napster users but i was young when it was <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, do y'all remember this program we were talking? You're just talking about taking snares in and out, and we used to use it all the time. And like again, this middle school, high school punk rock garage bands, but it was this program where you could download the tune like without the drum track in it. I don't really know this program. I've heard of I've heard of that type of thing. I didn't know there was a program that would like so so like algorithmically it would remove the drum track. I don't know how it worked. I know my buddy had that he played guitar with us, but he would have this thing and it was like he would have these metal tunes and he would take out like the bass line well, or he would download it without the bass line in it. And then that would be for our dude to practice with. And I don't remember what it's called. I think about it like every so often. But I didn't know if anyone remembered. I don't know what that is. That'd be way useful. I know when you see like, let's stick with the Lars Ulrich, like when, you know, Actually, I don't think he has videos like this. So say uh, some drummer, when you see a drummer like playing to their own band's tune, I assume they've they've got the studio tracks and they've got all yeah. the legal, all the legalities are on their side. Da 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 da. da. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, or they're just playing on top of everything else. Or they're just, just playing like, a lot more notes than he was allowed to play. Yeah, on the actual recording. Yeah, or you know, that. So. <laughs> they're like that on top of it. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. I, well, I, I've you... seen that. I've seen that program, and a lot of it was just sonic editing, you know, to to eliminate, uh, because 
to get the the rights to use and and to actually get the the individual tracks is is crazy hard and to get the rights from a real record label is insane insanely hard and expensive i mean we fight that all the time everything that we do on on the vic first site or zozen site right right well, one other little drummer news in history. In 2004, so there are two Ramones drummers. There's Marky Ramone, who I actually saw live play with the Misfits years ago. The Misfits were doing this, this hodgepodge put-together tour, and they had, had Marky Ramone with them for a while. But they have another drummer, Tommy Ramone. And Tommy Ramone, he died of bile duct cancer at age 65 in 2014 on July 11th. And one interesting thing I thought that was really cool about him, aside from, of course, being a drummer for the Ramones, that's very interesting in itself, but his, uh, he was born January 29th, 1949 in Budapest, Hungary, and his Jewish parents were professional photographers who survived the Holocaust by being hidden from with their neighbors. Their neighbors hid them uh, to safety, and many of his relatives were murdered by the Nazis. I had no idea that the, uh, history is that close. So anyway, yeah, Tommy Ramone died uh, this day, 2014, and uh, fat, uh, fun but sad facts about... Real the- uplifting. Thanks. Thanks for dragging us all down. Thanks for that. We usually, we usually have a big drag at the end. Yeah, this is the arc of your show, right? This is we start yeah. high. This is and we just this is it's why, all downhill, man. This is why Netflix won't answer my emails. <laughs> here, here, or Casey, Zildjian anymore. That's right. Yeah, watch out, Casey. For 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 you, I I would I would imagine that if we could do one of those. Uh, snare drum replacement videos how great would it be if we could take dream theater's first album and replace mm-hmm. all the snare drum hits with an actual non-triggered snare drum that well, would be I, yeah i was i was gonna say i hate that snare drum sound it's it's awful yeah. it's, it's just why is it it's like so there's so many tunes recorded in that era that that have that really bad you know <laughs> that you would like a real drummer or real real sounds to be heard on yeah It'd be so interesting to hear them discussing, like, okay, how are we going to, what, what snare drum sound do we want? Because it's such a characteristic part of the kit, you know? I mean, it's such such a characteristic part of the kit, and they tend to, I mean, keep that sound through the whole album. It's like a huge part of the characteristic of the album, but yeah. it'd be so interesting to be there when they're deciding, like, no, that needs, like, 18 times more echo. Like, who came right. up with that for that one, you know? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't like it. So you're right, Brian. John Whitman at a uh, Yamaha has a great clinic he does uh, about just the snare drum within a song and how basically the snare drum is the personality of a song and how to se- how you should be selecting the dr- snare drum for your drum set based on what is happening in the song and all sorts of things. It's really impressive. Well, and if you've ever encountered an album of you know a band you like or something where they have like they did these songs at this studio and it was mixed this way and then they did this song and this other one and then this one was something they recorded in their garage when they were kids and they're proud of it and they wanted to include it it's very i mean given that you're listening to an album start to finish the way people used to it's really weird Mm -hmm. like it does really change the experience a whole lot totally do you know the band uh of machines they're like a heavier post-hardcore group i know yeah yeah 
the, uh, they have, I think they only have one album. And I really like all the tunes for the most part, but the snare drum just sounds like ass through the whole thing. <laughs> and it's just, every time I hear it, I'm just like, man, it just sounds so bad, but everything else is all right for me. I swear, it's got to be one of those things where you, you put your ears on something long enough. Like, I know when I'm, you know, mixing the percussion ensemble here or something, or I'm trying to decide what to do, I just start to lose perspective entirely. I mean, it becomes so hard to, I don't even know what I like anymore, you know, after a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carly, I think you have a question from Mark. Yeah, Mark, bringing it back to pedagogy a little bit, um, have you found over the years, are there common roadblocks that you see that students have that keep them from reaching their potential, both musically or technically? I wouldn't say, like any roadblock that that students have is our fault, I think. You know, I, I, I have that view of music education. First of all, is is the goal that you're trying to achieve achievable? Are you are you trying to get a student? Are you teaching, um, you know, are you teaching trained dogs? Are you teaching a student in a musical situation? I think is is a real should be on the forefront of every educator's mind. Um, I, I I do think that there's you know like it's it's like teaching history. There's a certain amount of of uh, road posts or, or signposts that we need to hit, you know, to make sure that they're they're well versed in all of those things. But I I do think that if we're if we're so stuck on the road that we never venture off of the road to experience something that could bring more fulfillment or more enjoyment, especially in the musical situation, then I kind of think that we're teaching the wrong way. You know, like I, I say it all the time when people are, are talking about my book and saying, I can't get through it in a year. You know, I've tried and I've done that. Like, what what are you trying? Why? Why are you trying to do that? You know, first of all, anything that you don't like in it, just don't do. Do something else or have fun with a single lesson and see how many experiments you can have by kids playing different instruments, you know, playing different lines at the same time. I mean, you have to you have to create this enjoyment factor that transcends. I have to get from my students from point A to point B by a certain amount of time. Otherwise, I'm a failure as a teacher. If if that's your goal, which I know that that's the goal of a lot of teachers because they're constantly comparing themselves to other teachers and their students. I think we get on this competition uh, mindset, and and this is from me not teaching in the public schools for 20 years this is for me you know like hey i've been out of this so i don't have to be on that 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 uh treadmill of making sure my students are as good as the next school over or you know winning this competition or call for tapes or you know i don't i'm not on that treadmill so i can i can look at it holistically and say you know did it matter that you know like i didn't play four mallets until i got to college you know, for me, did it matter that, you know, wherever David Skidmore was when he was graduating high school, did it matter that he wasn't composing at that time? You know, I, all of these things are just mental. Yeah, yeah, we're just we're just throwing too much garbage into the road of having fun making music. 
just just to play devil's advocate real quick how do you um like where do you think the line of rigor needs to be because you you know you do hear people say that line keeps getting pushed back because we have to do things like both uh, public ed schools high schools middle schools colleges they have to recruit they have to have numbers which means the kids have to enroll which means they need to have fun and sometimes as we know that can be at the at the expense of maybe not the teacher's personal goals to feel good as a teacher but as to what they know the students need to be successful in music you know so it's like this I, that wasn't really a question, but no, um, I, I I get what you're saying because you know, it's fun is um, more important than rigor. You know, and it was the same thing back in the old days when what do you mean I got to teach mallets? Like I was just getting my kids really good at snare drum, and now you want me to teach mallets too? Mm-hmm. You know, and then oh, we have to play percussion ensembles. What God? What, what do they expect from me? You know, oh, world percussion. That's the thing now. Oh, we have still been. Oh, we have kids playing formal. I mean, like it, it's just like it. That's the churn of what we have, especially in the percussion world, because we have so many opportunities and so many different avenues that we can create music with. Um, I I tend to think of it as a um, how would I say this? The we are producing better musicians, better. Um, educated musicians, better performers, better technici- uh, technicians than we ever have. I, I can't even imagine any, any era that they were doing something better than what we're doing. And I think it all has to do with we're expecting more and the kids are achieving at a level. You know, like I, I was heavily involved with WGI, the, the indoor percussion world, all the way back from the beginning and what they're achieving now is just insane that the level that they're playing is insane and you know like even the front ensemble and i'm seeing it especially you know from the front ensemble a lot of these kids just started playing marimba two years ago and they're playing things that i never played in college it's just the teaching is so much better and and they're so in into it that they're just achieving at this level so I think it, 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 I don't know, without being too simplistic, I think it all has to do with, are the kids excited? Because I can tell you, my son, who's a 15-year-old snare drummer or, you know, percussionist at the high school, when he's excited, he's, he's practicing all the time. Of course. When he's not excited, I have to whip him. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, I have to go down and play with him on every single, you know, like, okay, here's the all region music. You got to do this. You got to do that. But you at know. least you're with him. You know, I guess that's what I mean. Like you'll, <laughs> you'll remind him like, cause, cause I think people hear this teachers, especially hear this message uh, too simplistically. They say like fun matters first and I have to have enrollments. I have to have kids in there and they, they don't, they don't whip them, you know, they don't say, hey, you know, this, this isn't fun all the time. Sometimes you have to do this other thing, which will ultimately be more satisfying and more fun. I have always seen the very best educators. It doesn't matter how hard the work is, the very best educators, the kids are right there with them, right yeah, in it yeah. at the same time. I mean, like I've, I've seen people that work their kids really hard and the kids hate it. I've seen mm-hmm. people who like work insane amount, you know, like the cadets or, or, 
you know, especially in the marching percussion world, like what they do on a daily basis in rehearsal and what it takes to be a member of that organization, they are in it. I mean, like they're not going, I hate this. I, I, I want to quit. And they're getting insanely good, you know, like any, any one of those uh, Santa Clara Vanguard or whatever. They're, they're so into it that they're achieving and they're going higher and higher. They're going past what the, uh, the instructor even wants or even is demanding. Yeah. So I think that's always a thing is, are you, as an instructor, are you motivating? Are you in it for, for you know, are because kids can tell. I mean, like I can put a sign on the board going, you will practice 45 minutes. You will do this. You will do this. I'm going to be in my office drinking coffee. Right. <laughs> Not going to work. Right. It's yeah. that magic of a culture, you know, yep. when... And we were talking about job interviews uh, a few episodes ago and job interview questions and common ones. How do you motivate? It's like, well, it's tough. And the, the trick is to build a culture. And so that hopefully it just kind of is this kind of mysterious sustaining force that just kind of runs itself. And yeah, you're there and you're there with them. And like you said, the kids are just really there with you. Yeah. And it is a, uh, so it's enjoyable. a group. I mean, it's a, it's a culture. Like you said, the kids can, take that to a completely different, different level when you, you know, you motivate some kids, especially the, the fun kids, you know, so it's all about motivating and getting kids involved in music and having the enjoyment of it. And then it'll start, it'll start stair-stepping. Mm, yeah. It's the bug. I mean, people have had so many words for it, you know, the culture, the bug, you know, for sure. Well, that is a great place to leave it. Man, Mark Wessels, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really neat to meet you for the first time. Of course, yeah, I had seen the effects of you for a long time, and I've had your books, and it's cool to finally have you on. <laughs> Didn't even get a chance to talk about Vic Firth or Zildjian. <laughs> I know. This I, flew I'm a marketing this person <laughs> for a living, and I didn't even do it. So You might lose your job. You're not marketing. Your... <laughs> if there is any, we have time. If there's anything else you want to tell us, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> no, no. I, I do think that um, one of the things that's been the, the biggest joy out of my job is that, you know, from the very beginning in 2000 when Vic hired me, is taking an educated educator's mindset to, I don't want to say marketing because we never really marketed, you know, we were always going like, what can we bring people that's going to make more people excited about percussion was the, the very, very first time I recorded, you know, the Yale percussion group or, you know, Svet when he was still an undergrad or, you know, like all of these, all of these memories I have of, of trying to bring something to the table all of it has to do with trying to motivate people to get them excited about playing, to, to bring the community together. And that, that's what the, the best thing about this podcast and other podcasts, the more you talk and the more you're surrounded with other influences and other opinions, the more you grow and the more involved you are. So I applaud you guys for, for doing this. Oh, thanks so much. And, um, yeah, likewise, congratulations on all the great stuff you've been doing for everyone. All right, everyone, thanks so much for joining us on 185. Carly, Brian, Caleb, we'll uh, catch you uh, whenever we catch you next. So uh, thanks, everyone. All right, all right thank you. Bye. Thank you.